This is Books of Titans, the podcast dedicated to the influences of influencers. The books that have helped shape prominent inventors, business leaders, athletes, intellectuals, scientists, and others. We'll talk about what makes these books such classics and at least attempt to have an intelligent discussion about what makes them so important and influential. Hello, this is Eric Rossett, and... Hi, I'm back. It's Jason Staples, the uh, <laughs> erstwhile co-host of this uh, this podcast, and I will be back with some more reviews of lots of books that I've read since the last time I was uh, actually on this podcast, so prepare thyselves. But Eric has done a great job in, uh, in carrying this podcast since uh, in my absence, but... Thanks for that, Eric. Well, we're going to do a special episode today where uh, Jason is on. He's going to ask, answer some questions that I have from the Bible. So these are some questions that I had while reading it, and then also some other questions that I got on social media while I was posting about reading it. So last week's episode covered the Bible, and this week's episode is going to go into, into some of these questions I have. And so why, why would I have Jason on? Well, Jason is a biblical scholar. He is... A the teaching assistant professor in the Department of Philosophy and Religious Studies at NC State University, and he is a historian of early Judaism and Christianity. He also has some books coming out, and I want him to uh, to talk about about these books. Yeah, I've been pretty busy of late, uh, working very hard on trying to get the these books that uh, I've put a sizable chunk of my life into actually uh, get these out. One manuscript is accepted, and I need to get the final final manuscript to the produ- production team. Uh, actually, by about the end of this month, I'm trying to get it to them before that, but uh, working hard to, to get that done. And then uh, it should be published by the end of this year. That book will be with Cambridge University Press, that, uh, and it's called The Idea of Israel and Second Temple Judaism, A New Theory of People, Exile, and Israelite Identity. Uh, so that's the, the first one that's coming out, and I've got a second that uh, I'm finalizing and getting ready to put through the peer review process, and that book is uh, tentatively called, I mean, you, you never get really to aim to, to uh, name your own books, uh, you, that, that always goes through marketing, but uh, that book is tentatively called Paul and the Resurrection of Israel, uh, which uh, that book is the second volume of, these, uh, of this two-volume set, which looks through... Uh, how the story of Israel in the Bible works in the Second Temple period, which is roughly the 6th century BCE through the 1st century CE area. For those of you not familiar with BCE and CE, it's the same as BC and AD. It just is the way that uh, scholars in the field tend to use those terms now. Uh, stands for before the Common Era and Common Era. Uh, but in any case... Uh, those two books have been the primary focus. I've got another book chapter for another unrelated volume that I got to get out by the 27th of this month. And also, uh, I'm finishing a, or working on, actually, I'm a little way, quite a ways from finishing, but it's due by the end of the year, a commentary on the New Testament epistle of James. So, uh, my, my plate's been pretty full on the writing front. Uh, several books, uh, should be out by mid year of next year. And, I will be looking forward to getting to do some projects that will have had their uh, their origins more recently, things that I'm maybe a little more excited about now. It's one of those things when you do a lot of research for a long time. The first parts of it 
can be interesting and exciting and all that. But by the time you actually get something done and you get all the footnotes done and you get all the, all the stuff out and it's finally out, you're kind of sick of it. And that's, that's where I'm at now, but, uh, (laughs) glad to be wrapping some of these things up. Like I said, uh, good chunk of my life going, going into those, those two volumes in particular and, uh, and looking forward to having those out. Well, and, and we will, in the show notes, link to Jason's website where you can sign up to his to his newsletter to get notified of when these books come out. I know I will be posting on the Books of Titans uh, Instagram account and Twitter as well, and we'll probably discuss his books on the podcast at, at some point as well. So just kind of keep keep your eye out for, for those things. One thing I really uh, love about Jason, uh, I've known him 10 plus years now, and um, he's he's one of the smartest people I know. Uh, he's also very just practical in the sense of, um, I, I, I think back to one particular example. This was actually when we talked about the book, Start With Start with Why. And I was just having a hard time thinking through, you know, what's my why? I got to figure out my why. And uh, Jason said, I, I know what my why is. And and he said, you know, the pretty, pretty straightforward commandments in the, in the, in, in, uh, when Jesus said, was asked, what are the, the two most popular, what are the two most important laws? And it's love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as your as yourself. That's a pretty good place to start for a, a why. And I just loved the the simplicity of that in in the sense of well, it's the, those are the two most important. All right, let's let's do them. Let's you know we don't need to uh, to expound on it or or talk about it ad nauseum, but let, let's just do it. And so I, 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 uh, I really love that about Jason. And, and, um, so I'm looking forward to this, to this episode, just asking him some, uh, uh some questions. I have, uh, 12 plus or minus 12, 12 questions that I want to go through. And I think these will help you, uh, as the listener as well. If, if, if you decide to read the Bible or if you, you have read the Bible, uh, maybe these are some common questions that you have as well. Um, so some of these are questions I had. Some of these are, are ones that I that I uh, collected on social media and, and, and actually in other conversations with with friends as well. So let's get right into it. I want to start with the first question here, and, and I, I kind of tried to follow the um, the timeline of the of the Bible in that sense. And I I'm going to refer to it as as the Old Testament and the New Testament in in this conversation, just because that's what the Bible I used says. Uh, or called them, uh, but we're going to start in in the Old Testament here. And my first question, Jason, is what do the different names of God mean in the Old Testament? Like, like how how should I go about reading them? What should I be be thinking of? Uh, and I'm thinking of three in particular. There's one of Lord, and when that's written in the version I have here. All the letters are capitalized. the The first letter is is a bigger capital capital, but then O R D is also capitalized uh, smaller. Then then we have God, and then we also have Lord God. And Lord God in that case, Lord is is just written regularly where L is capitalized, but the other words of Lord are not. So are those all different Hebrew words? Are they? Should I be thinking of those in a particular way whenever I come across them? Yeah, so that's a really, really good question uh, right up front. And the short answer is that, yes, these are all slightly different, or in some cases, very different words for the the God of Israel or for gods in general. Uh, and I guess the best way that I can explain this is that Hebrew has a word that is just the generic word for deity, 
or deities, and that is the word Elohim. Elohim actually is is plural. Uh, any im ending in Hebrew is the masculine plural ending. So Elohim really originally means something like gods. And in some cases you have ha Elohim, the gods. So like there's the, the spot where it says that Enoch, for example, walked with God. It's how it always translates it in, in English. But it actually says in Hebrew that he walked with ha Elohim, which some scholars have suggested that that actually means he walked with the gods in a, you know, in a more plural sense of the, of the term. It's, uh, it's not the way that that, was, that that came to be understood in later Jewish and Christian interpretation, which is why uh, that, that is translated as a singular. And the, the interesting thing about Elohim in the Hebrew Bible is that when it does appear, it is, with very few exceptions, only a couple exceptions, it's used with, together with a singular verb. So the first line of the Hebrew Bible, for example, is Elohim et et So in either a or the, depending on how you vocalize that beginning, God Elohim created bara. Now bara is the, uh, is the singular word, but it's a plural word for God with the singular word with the singular verb. So there's a subject verb disagreement here. That's that's English, uh, English and, and Hebrew work the same way there. You expect there to be subject verb disagreement, but Hebrew consistently, the Hebrew Bible consistently treats uh, the plural word Elohim as a singular word. So God operates as a singular entity, even though the word is plural. So there's a number of explanations as to why it's plural, uh, whether that comes from prior uh, polytheistic background or whether this is a plural of majesty. I mean, there's any number of explanations for that. But either way, that is just the standard word for deity. Uh, so, it, you know, it's a god. And you could have, you know, when you talk about the god Moloch, when you talk about the, you know, the various Egyptian gods, it refers to them as Elohim. Uh, so that's just a generic word. Then you have the name of the god of Israel, and that is the specific God. And this is something that actually a lot of modern readers don't really under, don't really process very well because we're not generally raised in a polytheistic society. And so there's a, this presumption that there's that you that most say Western Americans come to the Bible with, and that's that there's one God, and that's it. And you know, obviously, the Bible's only talking about one God. But that's not the world that the, that, the, that the Bible was written in. The Bible was written in a world that presumed that there were multiple gods or multiple deities or supernatural entities. And one of them was the God of Israel. And that God had a special name. So you have a God with a name. So that name is described in the... Uh, it's, there's actually a question in the beginning of Exodus where Moses asks the God of Israel, okay, who should I tell the, the, the children of Israel when I, when I come to the Israel's descendants and I tell them uh, that I've been sent by God, who should I tell them is sending me here? What's your name? And actually three answers are given. Ehia, Asher, Ehia, I am that, or, you know, I am because I am, or I am who I am. It's unclear exactly what that means. It's, a, it's sort of terse. Uh, then there's, uh, another one that tell them that the, I am that, that Ehya sent you. And then finally there's this four letters 
uh, Yod Hey Vav Hey or Y H W H in English that is given, and it says, "Okay, j- tell them Y H W H sent you. This is this is who sent you. This will be my memorial name for all generations in Israel," and that becomes the name then that is translated with Lord that has the second the the, the uh, second third and fourth letter so you know the final letters in small caps in your bible okay. that translates the special name of the god of israel and uh and so that's the the covenant name of the god of israel and we don't actually know for sure how that name was pronounced uh and there actually seem to have been regional dialectical differences in how that name was pronounced in the in the northern part of israel it probably was vocalized with a middle vowel, something like Yahuwah or Yahuwah, something like that. And then in the south, that, that middle vowel may have been elided, which uh, gets something closer to Yahweh, which is a common, uh, common way of, of uh, vocalizing it for those who choose to do that. In most cases, uh, the, the, by the way, the reason we don't know why it was or how it was pronounced is that ancient Hebrew is written without vowels. It's just consonants, so you have to know how the word's vocalized in order to be able to to read it from the from the consonants. You have to already sort of know those those vowels, but those vowels weren't put in there when those vowel when when eventually there were vowels added to the Hebrew Bible. Those vowels weren't put in for the name of God, the name of the God of Israel, because Jews had stopped using that name in a, in the effort to avoid using that name with empty purpose, which is one of the 10 commands, you will not use the name of, and then there's that name, Y-H-W-H, your God for empty purpose. Well, one way of ensuring that you never make an empty use of the name is never make use of the name. And so it stopped being pronounced and they, and, and other words were used to, uh, as circumlocutions for it. So Adonai was actually the most common circumlocution for it. Adonai is another word that means actually Lord or master in Hebrew. And so, uh, at a pretty early stage in, uh, early Judaism, you had people use it. They would substitute, they'd come across the name and then they would just say the Lord or the master. And that would be, that would be the way of, of designating that they were talking about the God of Israel without using the God of Israel's name. Uh, now Adonai also is used though of God the word Adonai, not the circumloc- not as a circumlocution, but as a na- as a title in its own right, and sometimes that appears alongside the name. So you have Lord Y H W H, and so then you've got a, a, a conundrum because do you say Adonai Adonai? Do you say Adonai? So there, do you, when you translate this, do you translate it Lord Lord? Which in some cases seems to have been how it was translated in uh, in, in in later Greek texts. Uh, around the turn of the century, uh, the turn of the uh, of the first century, but uh, uh, that then is eventually there are a couple of solutions that that are often used in uh, in the Jewish tradition, and one is to read Adonai plus the name as Adonai Elohim as a way of designating that the second Elohim is actually the substitute for the name. And so since Adonai plus Elohim doesn't appear, but Adonai plus the name does, when you say Adonai Elohim, you know that that means the name. So then when you see that translation, that's the small Lord with no caps. Okay. And then you have uh, the 
the the second word God is in caps and marking out that that is translating the special name of the God of Israel. Uh, and then a piece of trivia, by the way, is that the word Jehovah, which uh, many English speakers use uh, of God, the word Jehovah comes from actually combining the vowels for Adonai with the consonants for the name of the God of Israel. Uh, and so you put those together and then there's one vowel shift that happens when you go from uh, German to English and you get Jehovah. Uh, so, and, and the reason that it starts with a J is because this was initially done in German where the Y sound is, is made with the, with the J. So Jehovah is actually a hybrid word of Adonai plus the name of the God of Israel. And most, uh, people who are going to be respectful of Jews who continue not to pronounce the name will use uh, circumlocutions like Adonai when they're talking about uh, uh, the God of Israel, when they're doing scholarship and that sort of thing today. Uh, many Jews, by the way, today don't even use the word Adonai because that became too identified with the name. And, in, and so instead they say Hashem, which just means the name. So pretty lengthy explanation, but there's a lot going on with the, with these names uh, for God in the, in the Hebrew Bible. And one last piece of trivia as well. Uh, the command not to take the name of the Lord your God in vain has nothing to do with someone, you know, saying God or th things like that, because that would be the equivalent of Elohim. It has to do specifically with using the name of the God of Israel. And most likely this, uh, this refers to the use of the name of God, of invoking the name of the God of Israel in vows and then not fulfilling your vow. Uh, that seems to be the primary uh, primary meaning of that of that command. It has nothing to do with you know the equivalent of uh, swearing using God in English today. That you know history of swearing in English is actually class based and is a whole different story. But don't want to get too far off track there. Okay, so when I'm when I'm reading these three different versions, I mean uh, the the three different versions I, I mentioned at the beginning. When I'm reading those, do I just read those as referring to the same just it refers to god or do i do i th i think of them differently as i'm reading them that's a great question too so traditionally in both judaism and christianity those words refer to the same deity but okay. they refer to that deity in different aspects so in rabbinic literature you get this notion that elohim is god in his sort of distant power and Adonai, the, the name of God in, in uh, the special name of God is uh, God as he draws near and in his mercy. Uh, you know, these sorts of things, th this is a distinction that's made uh, there. In, in uh, early Christianity, you have the, the, the name is specifically associated with Jesus and uh, God, the father would be associated with Elohim. Now that, that is a much later, notion uh you know we don't we don't see that level of of division even in the new testament there's that it, it, it's less clear that they're that they're making that distinction but by the time you get the development of uh various christological debates and all of that in early christianity you see that sort of thing developing uh and you do notice that there are that those words tend to be used in different contexts and uh and what that's actually given rise to some of the major uh, documentary hypotheses about the writing of the Torah, which was clearly put together from multiple sources uh, over a, a reasonable length of time. 
And uh, one of the things that actually can help you have some sense of where one source might be a little different from another passage where, where one, uh, one passage comes from one source and another might come from the other is actually looking at how they use the names for God because one, uh, one set of sources, P and E, uh, is what they're often called, the priestly source, prefers Elohim. And then you have the J source or the Yahwist source, which, is, uh, which uses the, uh, the name for uh, the, the God of Israel even as early as, as Genesis, you know, or in, in Genesis two and three, and that these sources are kind of put together within the Torah by later editors, even though the, uh, the ways that they use the, the specific titles for God are, are a little different. Cool. Yeah. Thank you. That was, that was helpful. Um, question number two, we keep reading all over about the mind, heart, and soul to the original audience. What would those things have meant and how would they differ from our general conception of, of the difference between our mind, our heart and our soul? Ooh, so again, that's a little bit, um, a little bit tricky because the, the, the audiences aren't all the same. The Bible has multiple audiences. And so when Deuteronomy, for example, uses that phraseology, it's writing to a different group that is, that is thinking, you know, they're, they're, that's a Semitic speaking people. And the way that you use language affects the way that you think. Uh, so these are people who are thinking Hebraically, if, as it were, as opposed to, say, when you get the readers of the New Testament that are reading in Greek and they're influenced by all of the baggage that comes with the Greek language. And so those sorts of things are pretty significantly different. Uh, it's generally agreed within scholarship that Hebrew, that uh, the, the Hebrew Bible and Hebrew culture in general prior to uh, being more Hellenized uh, by contact with, with Greek culture took a more holistic view of the person such that the word soul, is, which, which translates the Hebrew word nefesh, is really best understood as something like your life. Uh, or your, you know, just just your central, the, the notion of your life force or your or, or your your being, uh, and that that's not differentiated from, say, your body. That like you have a soul within a body, and that those are separate. It's not quite like that in the in the uh, in the Hebrew Bible, uh, but you do have notions of you have ways of conceptualizing uh, cognition and the will and that sort of thing, and usually you get this notion of the mind is associated with what you think and, uh, and, and how you go about making decisions, but the heart is where you make your decisions. It's the seat of the will. Uh, and so usually that, um, that those things go together and that carries forward into Greek In Greek, you have the notion of the tripartite soul, which we actually discussed a couple of years ago when we talked about the, the Republic, uh, where you have, uh, anytime these kinds of terms are used in Greek, they're, they're, these are interfacing with that notion of the tripartite soul that's coming from Plato and Parmenides and, and the, even the pre-Socratics, where you have this idea of, again, the, the, the person's decision-making, the way that you actually go about life, it, you, that we're not holistic in the sense of just being one entity, but we have a body that has certain drives and desires that might go against the drive or, or go against what we know cognitively to be better. And then you have, again, the heart where you make your, make your decisions and those sorts of things. And that carries forward definitely into the, into the new Testament. So it's a little bit different in each, each place, but there are some similarities between the two. 
And would, with the soul, is there a conception that the, that the soul would live on past the life of the body, or is it just connected for this life? We don't know for sure for, for a lot of the Hebrew Bible, for a lot of the context where those books were written, they, they don't say much about any sort of afterlife. I mean, you get a sense of after someone dies, they go to Sheol, which is often translated as something like the grave. And it's a kind of nebulous concept that we don't have a whole lot of information about because it's just, it's one of those things that it's, it, that, that the, the authors of the Bible assume that you know what this means. They assume that the currency of the word and they don't explain it. And so since they don't really explain it, we kind of have to go with the best we got there and, and try to piece together from how it's used, what it means. But it usually means something like the grave or, you know, sort of this shadowy post-existence. So there seems to be some sense that there, there might be some sort of quasi afterlife, but it's not like a real life, if you, if you will. Uh, and later on, when you get the, the, the introduction of the notion of uh, resurrection, that seems to tie into the idea that there is a sort of permanent essence to a person, but that person is still not really alive or around unless they're embodied. And so coming up, you have to be resurrected from Sheol to actually live again. And this is, you know, the notion of the, the age to come or uh, the, the time after the resurrection that you get in Judaism. And then eventually that becomes something that becomes an important part of early Christianity as Jesus talks plenty about the resurrection. And uh, you get continued hopes for the resurrection through the letters of Paul and also into Revelation and elsewhere. So uh, there's this notion of an embodiedness that uh, that ties together with the soul, with this life force, uh, but the life force itself isn't really a thing, sort of that has any any es any real essence uh, that to speak of until it's embodied. Uh, and there's some question as to what kind of body uh, the resurrection might entail. But uh, and you get that like in First Corinthians 15. There's some discussion about that with celestial bodies versus. Uh, fleshly bodies and all of those things. And, uh, and again, it gets pretty compli complicated pretty quickly, but, uh, but yeah, that's, that's, like I said, that's, that's one that's going to vary a little bit across the various sources within the Bible, various books within the Bible. And also, uh, even where we have a good sense of it, it's, it's not especially well-defined. All right. Uh, question number three has to do with face to face. <laughs> So in Exodus 33, uh, it's, it says this, The Lord would speak with Moses face to face, just as a man speaks with his friend. Then Moses would return to the camp. And on the very same page, just a few paragraphs later, it said, and this is, this is the Lord speaking to Moses, You cannot see my face, for humans cannot see me and live. So how, how do we reconcile <laughs> those two, two things? Because I've, I've always thought that, People can't see the face of God and live. But then here it says the Lord would speak with Moses face to face, just as a man speaks with his friend. Yeah, this one, this this is probably the toughest question you've asked because this is, you know, this is there's a there's a lot of tension in the text itself where there seems to be, I mean, this this sure looks like a contradiction, right? This is um, uh, the sort of thing that, you know, you've got. One thing, like you said, it says he talked to him face to face, and then it says he can't actually see him face to face otherwise and, and live. Well, there's a few different explanations for this. One is one is that you have um, 
a couple different sources that have been spliced together without really any concern for the uh, the distinction. Uh, that's that's a, a common modern scholarly explanation of that. Uh, there are other options where basically you have just the use of an idiom that that you know face to face means like intimately in in Hebrew, and then it you have further explication after that that it doesn't literally like this is a way of specifying that it doesn't literally mean face to face, right? It's like face to face. Well, I, but I don't like mean like physically face to face because obviously that can't happen because you can't be face to face with God and live. So there might be something like that going on in this passage, uh, and then you have some other interesting midrashic, uh, th- these are, you know, inventive interpretations that you get within, uh, early Jewish context where you have the notion that, well, you know, Moses, it says you can't see God face to face and live. Well, what this means is that Moses actually wasn't like he would, he, he would take his life into his hands and essentially have to be revived when he'd get into the presence of God. Like God would raise him back up, uh, upon, uh, upon entering his presence there, but I don't think that works as well with the second one. But, um, but like I said, this is, this is, I think a pretty, this is one of the more difficult things to, to put together. And I think you just have to, at some point settle for the the mystery of what the, what the text is saying there. Okay, cool. Um, a lot of covenants. Um, there's, there's the biggies with Abraham and Moses, but then, uh, once we get, I, I believe into like maybe, well, judges and yeah, I think mostly judges where it's the people themselves making a covenant back with God saying, Hey, we're serious this time. We're really going to do it. We're, we're going to, we're going to obey the law. Um, I, I started getting confused with all these, these, these covenants. And, and so my question is when, when it was the people making the covenants with God, did did those nullify earlier covenants? Uh, because they, they, at some point it almost seemed like they started piling up on each other or did they all, did they all just build upon each other and have equal weight? So, uh, generally speaking, the way that this works is that these are probably better treated as renew as covenant renewals. So most of these would be looked at as a renewal of the covenant or a, you know, basically this is a restatement of, or, or a re acceptance of the covenant. And you'll notice that many of much of this happens in new in a new generation. So you have the prior generation had made their covenantal commitment. And now, you know, after some lapse or whatever, you have sort of a restatement of, of covenant that, you know, you, you brought up the, um, the, uh, the, the covenant say when the Israelites, you know, would say, okay, now we're serious. You get that idea. Like with, with, uh, uh, Joshua, for example, where they basically re, 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 reclaim the covenant once again, that's not a, that's not an abrogation or an annulment of the prior covenant any more than say, uh, if you were to, uh, go through a, marriage ceremony or a restatement of your vows with your, with your wife, that doesn't nullify the prior marriage, but it, it's a restatement of your, of your vows. Uh, so you get that notion with many of them, but there are other covenants that are made that are 
more specific. So you have, for example, the covenant that God makes with David. You have the covenant that God makes with Aaron and Aaron's descendants, and then the descendants of, of Phineas, and then the descendants of, of Zadok. These are, um, these are priestly covenants. And those covenants apply to those individuals and their lineage, but they don't apply to the people as a whole. And so that doesn't, it doesn't supersede the Israelite covenant overall, but it does establish a specific role within Israel for those people. So it's a covenant that sort of uh, is an addendum that adds, adds on. And in some cases you do get addenda that are added to covenants. So for example, the, the covenant with Moses is the same covenant that's given to Abraham. You have the same promises essentially, but there's a lot of additional uh amendments, as it were. There's, uh, there's addenda that are put in place to state how the people of God have to live in order to continue in relationship with the God who has made covenant with them, uh, which is also, it's worth noting, by the way, that in the Torah, in, in, the, in, the, uh, in, in the Jewish Bible, you do not have the notion of trying to earn your salvation or earn God's favor. Instead, God's favor comes first a person is born an Israelite, is born a child of Abraham, is 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 uh, a child of Abraham already, and then receives the commands of obedience, which are to be fulfilled in in gratitude and as a part of remaining in the favor of God. This is obedience in consequence rather than uh, obedience in order to to gain uh, God's favor in consequence of. So that's worth worth noting there. But yeah, there's there's a lot of that. And that actually applies also even in the New Testament, which New Testament, of course, means new covenant. Novum Testamentum in, is Latin for uh, new covenant. And when you get to the New Testament, they're actually proclaiming that the covenant renewal that was promised by uh, specifically actually Jeremiah in, in Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, where there's a promise of a new covenant that will be made with the house of Israel and the house of Judah the earliest Christians are proclaiming that that covenant that was promised, this renewal of the covenant that was promised uh, to the descendants of Israel has, be, has begun to be fulfilled through the life, death, resurrection, and resurrection of Jesus, and then the concomitant sending of the, of the Holy Spirit to the people of God to enable them to do God's will. And that that becomes the, uh, the, the that's a new covenant that then does not abrogate the old covenant, but it supersedes it in as much as it is, uh, it is a renewal of it. So it doesn't eliminate it. It is simply a renewal of it. And, and I guess supersede isn't even the right word there. Uh, it's, it's more of a covenant renewal. It's a, uh, it's a, uh, uh, a reintroduction or a restatement of covenantal terms as God readopts his people. Well, and then there's also the talk of eternal covenants, but then also, uh, so was, was the, with Eli, was that a covenant with Eli? Because that was lost because of his sons, right? Right. Yeah. So any covenant in the Bible, even, even when it's, when it's called eternal, uh, that's a complicated notion in itself, but any covenant in the Bible is ultimately conditional in some sense because covenants have uh, uh, have two parties that are involved, and you have statements of requirement from one party to another, and then that party then requires re reciprocity. Covenants are always reciprocal, uh, and so you have 
and this is actually ex- ex- explained very early in Genesis, where in Genesis 15, Abraham gets a, co- a statement of covenant from God in Genesis 15. And, uh, and he is, he's given all these promises, these covenantal promises. So then in Genesis 16, though, he goes and en- engages in a surrogate relationship with a, with his, uh, Egyptian, uh, sl- uh slave girl, uh, actually at the behest of his wife, and then conceives uh, a child, uh, through her. And then she has that child and all of this. And he, he believes that this is the way that he's ultimately fulfilling the promise of God that he received in Genesis 15. And then 13 years later, once that child is old enough, God shows back up. And this time he, uh, isn't happy and says, I am God almighty walk before me and be blameless. And Abraham then God then delivers some conditions now to Abraham for the covenant, including the covenant, uh, including the sign of circumcision, which Abraham and all of his uh, descendants after him are to, uh, are to practice. And this seems to be uh, a statement to Abraham to say, "I, I don't think you understood me initially. I don't think you understood that you actually, yeah, I, I made my promises and I will do the things that I said, but you have some requirements placed on you as, uh, as well. Uh, and God says the same thing to, uh, to Saul when Saul disobeys, he says, uh, or he says, I would have made from you an everlasting house. And he says the same thing to Jeroboam, uh, after, um, the kingdom divides into North and South the, the king of the northern kingdom of Israel, when God cuts him off, he says, I would have made you an everlasting, given you an everlasting house, just like I gave to David, but now no. Uh, and so you have this notion that obedience is required to sustain the covenant and that covenants always have some aspect of uh, reciprocity and uh, expectation and uh, conditionality to them. That's actually one of the core emphases of the book of Deuteronomy, for example, is the conditionality of the covenant. Question number five. Yeah, five. This is my first time reading straight through the Bible. And one thing that really stuck out to me was that Jesus almost comes across as cautious in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But then in John, it's almost guns blazing. So why, why, why the difference? Yeah, that's a, there are, I'm going to preface this by saying that there are a number of explanations for this among biblical scholars. This is the most, uh, this is, this is my version of one of the consensus positions. And and that is, first of all, uh, Jesus Matthew, Mark, and Luke all ultimately derive from the narrative in Mark, which was almost certainly the first gospel to be written in the New Te- the first New Testament gospel to be written. And Mark actually, if you read Mark independently of, of any of the other gospels and you read it closely, you find that Jesus is remarkably secretive in Mark. There's this, there's this strain, there's this oddity that he'll heal someone and he'll say like, now don't you go telling anybody. Right? Don't go to don't go spreading this around. And of course, nobody ever listens to Jesus. So, except for the demons, uh, you know that's another another thing. But um, but he's, don't you go telling anybody. And then he you know he's trying to keep things basically on the down low. Uh, this is a this is a, a motif that's often called the messianic secret in Mark. And a lot of uh, and, and and actually 
a lot of scholars go back to this uh, this German scholar named Vreda, uh, W R E D E. Uh, Vreda argued that this was Mark's way of, in a narrative fashion, explaining why Jesus was not, why Christians were preaching that Jesus was the Messiah when it's not evident that Jesus claimed publicly to be the Messiah. Like, well, wait a second, you're telling us that this guy was the Messiah, but why didn't anybody think that while he was alive? And Mark's narrative answer for this, this is kind of an apologetic move, uh, is to say, well, the reason that people didn't know this, except for the people on the inside, is that Jesus wasn't real open about this. Like he had a specific way of doing this that he kept things kind of on the down low until it was time. And so, you know, but we on the inside, Jesus dealt with the insiders and, and let us in on a little bit more. But of course we misunderstood everything from the beginning too. And really we didn't see it until the resurrection when finally all of all, everything was explained, you know, at the crucifixion and resurrection that, that finally explains what's going on. Uh, and, and, to, to add to that, Mark is heavily dependent on another core rhetorical device, and that's irony, uh, dramatic irony specifically. And, and this is the disconnect between what the characters in the story understand to be going on and how they understand things and what the reader is expected to understand and to know. I mean, and, and so if you think about this, like in horror movies, you often have a dependence on dramatic irony where the characters are making decisions that the the audience knows full well that these are terrible decisions but from the character's point of view you couldn't know that but the disconnect between what the audience knows and what the characters know and how they act creates this dramatic tension due to the irony that's there and mark depends on this a lot with how certain words are used, how certain phrases are used, which ver which Bible verses Jesus quotes and in what fashion, uh, how certain teachings that Jesus gives and, and actions that he does that are, that are understood one way by the people in the story, but they actually mean something else when you understand it from the, from the reader's perspective. So I'll give you an example, a couple examples of that. One is Jesus is, uh, in the process of being executed, he is uh, stripped of his garment and then they dress him in uh, royal robes, purple robes and, uh, you know, purple garments. And they put a crown of thorns on his head and they put a reed in his hand with a, uh, as a staff and they bow down to him. These are the Roman soldiers. They bow down to him and they, you know, as though they're worshiping him or as though they're doing obeisance to him. And they say, hail king of the Jews. Right. And they, and they're doing this mocking him. Right. That's one that that's the level of the story. They understand themselves to be mocking this person, but from the level of the reader who knows the Hebrew Bible, which is what Mark is kind of assuming for his readers. If you know the, the old Testament, then you know that the prof the prophets have have this promise that the king of Israel will be lifted up and the nations will come and bow down to the king of Israel. The Gentiles will come and bow down to the king of Israel. And so when you're reading Mark, you come across this and you go, oh, oh, wow, prophecy is being fulfilled. Now it's being fulfilled in, in the most unexpected way possible because this looks like total defeat. But 
it's being fulfilled or Jesus is lifted up. Well, in Greek, this can mean either to be exalted that, you know, this is a, an, a word of exaltation or in the gospel of Mark, Jesus is lifted up. That is exalted precisely when he is lifted up to be executed on a, on a tree. So his moment of exaltation, his enthronement is the moment that looks like it's the most devastating and the moment of defeat. Similarly, when Jesus cries out from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This sounds like he's crying out this in final agony, his abandonment from God. You know, oh no, like, you know, things are, things, this is not what I expected. But if you know Psalm 22, that's the first line of Psalm 22, uh, uh, first verse of Psalm 22, that's Psalm 22, one. And Psalm 22 includes lines later on, such as, uh, God has not, he will not, or he has not turned his face away from the suffering of his afflicted one. So by the way, any, and you know, you get these hymns, for example, that say, oh, you know, the father turned his face away. Read Psalm 21. Psalm 21 says the father did not turn his face away. And Psalm 22 then finishes with the statement, I will sing, uh, uh, I will declare his praises in the assembly of my brothers for he has accomplished it or he has done it. And it concludes in this, this praise of vindication that the afflicted one who cried out to God has accomplished his purpose and his mission in fulfilling the promises to Israel and, and, and doing all of these things and in, in that ultimately God has vindicated this person. So all of that's embedded in this one statement in the Gospel of Mark that if you read it on the level of what the characters think, you're going to misread it. But if you read it with the knowledge of Psalm 22, you realize, oh, wow, Mark is saying that paradoxically, this is the moment when he does it. And so this is the, the sort of reversal that Mark is depending on throughout, that Jesus is exalted by becoming the servant. Jesus is the one who, you know, does, who becomes the greatest by serving all. And all of these things are, are embedded. It's the reversal, the ironic, dramatic reversals in Mark that are embedded in there. And those persist to some, to, to varying degrees in Matthew and Luke, each of whom use Mark. And there's actually some interesting, you know, sort of errors in, uh, in editing. You've got, for example, places where, uh, <laughs> Jesus, for example, will be with a, a large crowd of people and then he'll heal someone and then tell that person, now don't you tell anybody. And you're like, yeah, you're with, over a thousand, you're thousands of people here, like the, the, in the narrative here in Matthew or Luke, like there's thousands of people here. But if you go back to that story in Mark, he's not with thousands of people when that healing happens. And it just happens to be that in the new context in Matthew or Luke, where they're using that story, they didn't edit the, you know, edit it to say, okay. And then they left the crowd and then, you know, so they're just working with the material that they're familiar with. And, and, and you get that, that going. So that, that carries forward in both Matthew and in Luke, both of whom kind of have this, again, this same idea that Jesus teaches in parables to the outsiders. And he kind of keeps things internal in terms of that. John is a different animal altogether. John comes along and John for John. And I, I think, uh, Mark Goodacre, uh, who's writing a book on this is, is right that John already knows Matthew, Mark, and Luke. He knows the, what are called the synoptic gospels because they see together synoptic. Uh, 
they John John is more interested in making sure that you read those synoptic gospels in specific ways, and he wants to come in and characterize Jesus in specific ways that make things more obvious than say what they are in Mark. And so John presents itself as sort of the gospel from the insider's perspective. Jesus, you notice when Jesus is talking like in John three sixteen, which or, or, where you have, you know, for God loved the world in this way that he, that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have eternal life. You have this statement and you have, you must be born again. You know, all these f- famous places from the gospel of John, all that stuff is in a long speech, a philosophical speech that's given to a Jewish leader under cover of darkness. This is not public teaching. And the second half of John is basically one day. It's a 24 hour period where Jesus is with no one but his own disciples. And he's speaking very plainly with them in the ways that it's sort of working with this distinction between the insiders and the outsiders where in John, it's trying to give you the insider view. This is sort of the conceit. This is the, uh, the frame that John wants to give you is that like, look, this is what it was all about. And you know, don't, if you, if you really want to understand what the other gospels are talking about, you have to read, you have to read them this way. And it's designed to give you that, that kind of view. So that's why the guns are blazing in John is that it's trying to build on that and trying to make sure that you don't misread those other gospels or misread them in a way that the the author of the gospel of John would not want you to read them. Hmm. Well, and and along these lines, the the other thing that really stuck out, uh, especially in, in Matthew was just the different names of Jesus. And and as you mentioned, Jesus never calls himself Messiah, but Jesus always refers to himself as the son of man, the demon possessed always call him the son of God. Those who need healing always call him the son of David. And then we see the Magi and Pilate call him king of the Jews. And the Magi, uh, you know, legitimately, but then uh, Pilate kind of in a mocking way. And then Caiaphas right, in, but, in but the trial. Again, in, when, Pilate, when Pilate does this, you notice when Pilate does this in Mark, he says, uh, you know, he puts up the king of the Jews and, you know, there's this whole thing, well, I've written what I've written and all of this. He's being sarcastic, of course, but then if you're reading Mark, you got to go, oh, oh, Rome has even declared that Jesus is indeed <laughs> the king of the Jews, right? So this is, yeah. this is, this is Mark's, you know, genius, literary genius at work. But anyway. Um, and then Caiaphas asks Jesus if, if he is, is the Messiah. Uh, so just fascinating to me that the the different you know Jesus does never say hey uh, I'm the son of David uh, or the son of God but he says he's son of man and then son of man is the reference back to Daniel seven um, and so I know we we discussed this briefly after I finished reading the Bible and you were talking about Mark where it's kind of those two levels where you could you could just read son of man you said son of man could be translated as just human being or you could look back at that reference to Daniel seven and son of man is a, a big deal. And so he, he is making a statement there every time he's calling himself the son of man. But if you're just reading it as him saying human being, well, it, it, you're going to, it's going to pass that by. But if, if you've just come from reading 
the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, and you see in Daniel seven, it's a whole different different ball game. But yeah, it 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 it, it was interesting to me just to to see how the different groups refer to Jesus, and and kind of along those lines of what you were saying of of the demon possessed being the only ones that that ever ever obeyed him. <laughs> And then uh, Caiaphas, uh, in in, our, in the phone call we had earlier, you you mentioned that Caiaphas was perhaps one of the very few people that actually understood what Jesus was saying. Yeah, you have so even in in uh, in the Gospels, you have this idea that Caiaphas prophesied, right? That mm-hmm. that Caiaphas as high priest that year prophesied that it would be you know when he said, uh, well, it's better that one person dies then the whole nation perish. And they said, well, and he didn't just say this of his own accord, but, you know, being high priest that year, he prophesied. So there's this notion that the anointing of God that's on the high priest actually gives him sort of the insight to recognize what Jesus is actually actually claiming, which is interesting. Uh, which, by the way, Messiah does not mean divine. M- Messiah just means uh, the, the one who has been uh, appointed uh, through... The, the, through various processes, but one who has been appointed for the specific role or task by God, uh, generally for uh, Messiah is associated with kingship or with being a priest. Uh, and so Jesus being Messiah in this case would involve him being the Davidic king uh, is the idea. And the Davidic king isn't necessarily divine. That That's not what that word means. But son of God would potentially mean that. And son of man... Like you said, Mark's got the two-level thing going going there. You could read it that way, or you could not read it that way, right? And I think Mark is intending for you to read it that way. Uh, but why does Jesus call himself Son of Man? Well, I think that's part of the artistry of Mark. I think also Jesus probably did historically call himself Baranasha uh, in Aramaic, this um, uh, meaning the human being, and referred to himself in, in such a way that is playing on that Daniel 7 notion, because I think I think Daniel 7 through 9 in particular was, was critical for Jesus' self-understanding. Uh, and then when you look at why the demon-possessed call him the Son of God, and why Caiaphas calls him the Messiah, or, or, or asks whether he's the Messiah, and recognizes that Jesus is claiming that, well, those figures, the demons are actually outside the frame of reference, the fleshly frame of reference that everybody else is in, right? All the other characters in the story are only seeing through fleshly eyes. The demons may be evil, but they actually have a spirit's eye view of things, as it were. So they're able to see Jesus for who he is, and so they refer to him that way. Uh, That's the idea. And so this is, again, one of those ironies that uh, that the demons actually recognize Jesus when his own disciples don't really recognize how things are going to work. Uh, and then finally you have, uh, those who, well, you've got those who wanted healing. They refer to him as the, as the son of David. This most likely refers to the idea that the, uh, rightful King of Israel has healing power, uh, which is a tradition that we see in, uh, in Judaism in the second temple period. Uh, and then finally, you have the magi, uh, these, uh, these, uh, it's a word actually, magi in, in, in uh, Greek just means magicians, it's the plural of magus, uh, but it, it is also the way that, uh, that Zoroastrian priests from the East were referred to by uh, Greek speakers in this time, so that's almost certainly what it's trying to refer to in, Mar- or in Matthew, it's the only place, Matthew's the only place where the magi show up, but they and Pilate are foreigners. And so for them as outsiders, the, the, the question is, is Jesus position among his own people? And that of course then brings up the King of the Jews question 
uh, and that's why they refer to him as such. Hmm. All right, we we also see two sets of genealogies, one in Matthew and one in Luke, and they are different. The one in Matthew is is surprising because you're seeing a lot of the kings of Judah. Uh, you're also seeing a lot of a lot of people that we 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 read about in in the Old Testament. Uh, the one in in Luke, um, not as many recognizable people. So what? Uh, but then at the end of both of them, it says these are the these are the this is the genealogy of Jesus and uh, his to his father Joseph. So if they're both to Joseph, why are the genealogies different? Yeah. So one one explanation is simply that they had different source material for this, or just you know did it differently. Uh, you know maybe Luke didn't like Matthews. Uh, so that that's sort of your mundane explanation. Uh, another explanation that has a long currency in uh, in Christian interpretation is that the two genealogies are actually not both to Joseph. Uh, there's this idea that Matthew's genealogy does trace to Joseph, but uh, the genealogy in Luke actually traces to Jesus' mother, Mary, and gets away with uh, a little bit of sleight of hand here by a grammatical trick where uh, basically in Luke it says the, uh, Jesus was the son, so it was thought, of Joseph. And then the genealogy works its way back rather than starting and saying this person begat this person who begat this person who begat this person. Uh, or fathered, or whatever, conceived. Um, Luke works backwards, starting with Jesus and then working backward. And he can, and he starts with Jesus saying, he was the son, so it was thought of Joseph. And then of Heli, of Mata, uh, and, and working its way back. And so it's just a series of genitive case names. And grammatically speaking, this can actually function in such a way that it's actually Jesus is the sub, is the, all of these, uh, all of these uh, genitives, which is the possessive case in, in Greek, all of these go back to Jesus. Now, they could modify the one in front of them. So, Heli, the father of Joseph, right? Joseph, the son of Heli, or uh, if I'm remembering it right, it's Heli. Um, and then, you know, the, that, the, the next one is the, is the, he's the son of the next one. Or it can be Jesus, the son, so it was thought of Joseph, Jesus, the son of Heli, Jesus, the son of Matha. And so there's a grammatical ambiguity there, which later interpreters latched onto to try to harmonize the two genealogies and say, okay, well, this is because ultimately one goes back to Mary. It's grammatically defensible. Um, I think most biblical scholars would just say, well, you know, they just got different genealogies because they got different uh, source material for it. And, you know, each of them goes back to Dan uh, back to David, but... You know, who knows which one is right and, you know, who, you know, it, it's just because they did it differently and that's that. So, yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, I, when I read through the Bible, I did not, um, I just wrote questions I had in the margins. I did not try to go to Google to, to, to find answers to questions. I did not contact you except for one question. And the question I asked you while I was reading it was, uh, well, when, when, when Jesus is on the cross in the synoptic, the synoptic gospels, it, uh, all three of them make the statement that the curtain of the temple was torn in two. And, and one of them says from top to the bottom, uh, this was the curtain that 
separated the Holy of Holies in the temple. And so the idea is when Jesus dies, that rips open, is torn in two, and so now there's there's entry into the Holy of Holies. Uh, and so I, I asked the question, because after Jesus is resurrected and after Jesus ascends to, to heaven, uh, his disciples are in the temple daily. And so my question to you was, is there any record of, of the Jews repairing this curtain that was torn? Because that would be very awkward if the disciples are in there every day and all they really have to do is just kind of point to that curtain and, hey, when did that curtain rip? Um, why didn't you guys fix it? Or, you know, um, and, and you, you replied and said it was most likely a metaphor when it says that the curtain is torn in two. And so I, w- I was shocked by that when you said that because it, it reads just, then the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. But other parts in the Bible where where a metaphor is used, uh, like if Jesus is speaking of the kingdom of heaven or Isaiah about his visions, John about his visions, they'll say it is like this or it is like this. So why wouldn't the the writers have just said when he when Jesus breathed his last, it was like the curtain of the temple was torn in two, uh, if it was a metaphor? So that that kind of builds up to my question which is a deeper question of if a statement kind of that straightforward of then the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom is a metaphor. What's the best way to approach this text (laughs) when that just seems like such a straightforward, okay, the curtain in the temple was ripped in two. Yeah. So first of all, a metaphor would not use like, or as that would make it a simile, right? Okay. So, uh, so, yeah, that that that's that's number one is that metaphors by nature are, you know, it, it's where I would say, you know, um, Eric is a bolt of lightning. Well, you know, that might be a way to refer to your unusual intelligence or your uh, your rare speed for a man of your age. But. Nobody's going to understand that to mean that you are literally, you know, a bolt of lightning, like coming out of the sky. Right. Mm -hmm. So uh, I do want to preface this with a couple things. So we can't rule out that this is speaking of a literal tearing of a curtain in the temple. Right. We can't rule that out because we weren't there. We don't have evidence one way or the other. We also don't have a whole lot of evidence for, you know, we have no evidence that I know of, at least outside of the New Testament that suggests that there was a, uh, a that, that the, the veil of the temple was torn. There's nothing outside of the New Testament from this era that that suggests that. So, you know, there's nothing, no other evidence. Um, there are there has been and I know one article from uh, the Journal of the Evangelical Theological Society argues from some much later rabbinic evidence that there seems to have been some sort of strange thing that happened uh, around this time having to do with the temple. But, you know, I, I'm, I'm not necessarily persuaded by that. Uh, but we can we can link to that article uh, through uh, through the in the show notes. But um, so it's I don't want to rule out that you could have the temple being literally torn in this case or the temple veil literally torn, but there's a couple different 
uh, curtains, by the way. There's the one that veils the Holy of Holies. There's one that separates the, the holy place from, uh, from the outside and so on. So it's not even clear there. And there's some debate over which one is intended and all of that. Uh, but the other thing that, that we, we have to preface all of this with is you mentioned that the disciples were in the temple you know, all the time after that. That's not exactly accurate uh, because only priests went into the temple. You could not go into the temple itself. So if this is talking, for example, about the curtain where the, between the Holy of Holies and the holy place, you couldn't, as a normal Jewish person, go into the holy place to see that. The most you could do was try to get an angle so that maybe you could see into the temple from outside and see in through to see the curtain. Maybe, but we, it's it, it, based on there being another curtain at the front, it's, it's probable that you never would have been able to do that either. So okay. when, and when it talks about them being in the temple in, in the New Testament, it's talking about them, this is shorthand for them being on the temple grounds in the temple courts. You know, this is on, uh, in the temple precincts. It's, it's short for that because okay. no one could go into the temple building itself other than the priests themselves. And, and that would be actually only like one at a time to offer the incense before the, the, the uh, altar of incense and all of that. And in the Holy of Holies, only one priest once a year would go in there. Right. Okay. So this is not a situation where even if this is literal, it's not a situation where they could go walk in and be like, uh, yeah, what happened there? Okay. Right. Cause this is not accessible to anybody. Nobody's, nobody's able to see this. So, that's that's all sort of front end stuff. The reason that I that I take this as most likely being metaphorical uh, is that the Gospels are pretty consistent, and you see this especially in John. But the Gospels are pretty consistent in regarding Jesus' body as the temple, right? You, and, and this specifically has to do with Jesus' statement, uh, which is. T- uh, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it uh, I will I will ra- build it back up again or I will I will raise it up again and John explicitly says they thought he was talking about this temple about the physical temple but what they didn't realize is he was talking about the temple of his body well you can extend the same insight to okay well what's the temple veil then well it's Jesus body this happens at the moment that he dies that Jesus body is the, the veil is torn and Jesus dies, the spirit leaves, and that moment is the, the, the sort of tearing of the, the, of the presence away, right? But it's also the thing that then gives access because Jesus, as the temple, when he, come, when he resurrects and then ascends and then sends his spirit then his body, ultimately, the, the church becomes his body, right? The, his people become his body so that this extends to everyone. And so this seems to me to be, again, Mark speaking in a very elusive fashion initially, and then Matthew and, and Luke uh, pulling from that as well, where he's saying, you know, the, the temple, at, at, you know, then he did, when he, he died, the temple veil was torn. This is specifically connecting what's happening with Jesus to the salvific atonement aspect of the death. Uh, and I think that that's what that's really about. And even if it were referring to the literal uh, curtain in the temple, and again, we can't rule that out. Uh, 
the meaning would be the same. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, you get the same meaning out of the passage either way. So there's not a whole lot at stake one way or the other there. Okay. Well, along these lines of, of when Jesus is, is killed, there's darkness, there's earthquakes, and then at the moment of his death, the, uh, it says that the dead rise, like some, some people who are dead come out of their graves. So this, this is a question a friend of mine had. You effectively have zombies running around. around. Why isn't there any record of someone like Josephus uh, you know, tweeting this out. What, what in the Sam Hill is going on in Jerusalem? Like what, uh, you know, like even a, uh, some sort of a mention somewhere, like there's dead people walking around Jer- Jerusalem. What's going, what's going on? Well, for one, uh, they're not dead people, right? These are not zombies. These are, uh, these are people who are resurrected. These are people who are alive, very much alive. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so you have that notion there first and foremost. Secondly, it doesn't appear, uh, you know, we, we don't have any evidence of this outside of Matthew, and it doesn't even, it doesn't get mentioned in Mark or Luke or in John either. So, you know, as far as we know, this is the sort of, again, potentially something that Matthew's putting in for a literary purpose. If we're going to talk about this as a historical event, then the only things that we could, the only ways that we could really explain this is one, we don't have a whole lot of material from this period, right? You've got the New Testament, mm-hmm. and you've got Josephus who's writing decades later and is, you know, writing on different things that is basically the, those are the only sources we have from the era, Mm -hmm. right. That refer to this time. So you're not going to, you're not going to get a whole lot uh, of, of corroboration on, on much of anything. Uh, So even if it is historical, you're not going to get much of that. Uh, And then, you know, once again, the other thing is if it is, if we're talking about something historical rather than something that, that Matthew's trying to communicate in a more symbolic fashion, uh, then you're very probably not dealing with a whole, with a, a great number of resurrected people. You're probably dealing with the sort of thing where, you know, well, Jesus resurrected too, right? In, in Matthew and in, and in Luke, you have post-resurrection appearances, but Jesus isn't appearing to, you know, Caiaphas, and going, hey, yo, I'm back, right? <laughs> By the way, I'm going to go say hello to my dad from you. You know, these sorts of things. You don't have that. Yeah. Jesus appears only to those, to his disciples. And so, you know, these resurrected folks, I think the, the, the notion would be that they only, uh, only were visiting those that became a part of the community. Uh, and okay. so that's, that's another side to this. So... Again, I'm not sure that we should understand that part of Matthew as uh, as specifically a historical event, uh, because of you know lots of the other apocalyptic imagery around that. Uh, N.T. Wright has some uh, some things to say about the apocalyptic language here and what that means in terms of um, of how Matthew is writing this and how that would have been read by a first century uh, person. And I think uh, I think Tom is, is 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 right in how he reads that. So uh, that's that's sort of where I come in on it. But even if it is, if it's something that's, that's literal, I think there's, there's good reason that you wouldn't see any discussion of it. Okay. Uh, we referenced this earlier with, uh, with the afterlife. That was a big shock to me, just reading it straight through, not really seeing any mention in the old Testament other than what you had said of, of Sheol. 
Uh, and then descriptions in the New Testament of, of an afterlife kind of left me confused. I, I think I went into reading the, the Bible more of having an, this idea of a clear-cut heaven and hell or, or some sort of a, a place that you go afterwards. So I didn't see it in the Old Testament other than Sheol, and then in the New Testament, just not, not how I'm accustomed to hearing it in church. So where did these, these ideas come from and, and like, when did they creep in if, if we're not seeing them here necessarily? (laughs) Once again, this is complicated because, uh, there, there are, there's some developing ideas about the afterlife throughout the, the period prior to Christianity. So uh, by the time you get to the second century, you have a a mention of a future resurrection in uh, Daniel 12. You have some discussions of resurrection in second Maccabees, which is one of the books that's in the, uh, in the deuterocanonical works uh, that are often uh, called the Apocrypha in, uh, in the Catholic Bible, for example. Uh, You have some mentions of resurrection there. And there's this idea of a future judgment after people are, are uh, raised from the dead, that uh, that's where all of the wrongs of this world, because this world is obviously in, is unjust uh, and injustice rules. Well, when God sets things right, well, what good is that for the people who died? Well, those people must come back to get their, get their just rewards, if that's the case. So you get some reflection on that sort of thing uh, in the tradition more and more, particularly after the, during and after the events of the Maccabean Revolt. You start to see this around the second, uh, around the second century BCE. You get much more emphasis on this, this side of things. Uh, and and some, there's some loose development of some of this earlier in the Persian period, in the, in, you know, late in the Persian period, and, which is earlier than the Hellenistic period. And then that grows forward to, uh, to a notion of resurrection and, and uh, final judgment and all of that. And you also have, at around the same time, in the Greek world, you have some development of, from basically the idea of the shady existence or quasi-existence or sub-existence in Hades or the grave after, after death, which, you know, some really bad people might have it really bad afterwards, but, you know, better to be a, uh, uh, better to be a slave, a living slave than, you know, a king in, in Hades. You know, this is the, uh, idea that, uh, that you see in the Odyssey, right? You have, uh, Achilles, uh, being warned about this, uh, because it's not really existence, right? It's, it's sort of a sub-existence existence, uh, that that's that idea in early Greek thinking, but then you have the development in the Greek world as well into a notion of uh, af- an afterlife that has d- uh, punishments and rewards and all of that for uh, for various people. And then you have uh, some other things like in Plato, you have some notions of uh, of the virtuous receive celestial bodies and all of these other things. And that that ultimately develops in the Christian era. Uh, Christianity sort of takes the heritage of the resurrection that it gets from uh, apocalyptic Judaism and the heritage of, uh, of judgment and celestial bodies and that sort of thing that it gets from uh, the Platonic and, and Greek tradition. And it sort of, you see those, those things sort of go to work from there. 
and uh, you get a development along with contact from the east where you have uh, notions of hell and, you know, really rich notions of punishment that show up in, uh, particularly in Zoroastrianism, which uh, you have some contact with uh, the Persian East uh, that you get into Dante and all of that, where he's getting some of that material straight from the Persian East. Uh, and you get a development of a much more uh, detailed notion of af of the afterlife and of punishment and of reward and all of that, where it's much fuzzier in the New Testament and even fuzzier than that in the Hebrew Bible. Uh, what you do get in the New Testament is the conviction that God is just and that ultimately those who do right will be will receive reward for it, uh, as Paul says in in, uh, in Romans 2, that uh, those who do justice will receive uh, everlasting honor and, and uh, will receive uh, eternal life, and then those who do wickedness will receive eternal uh, disgrace and, and, and you know there will be much uh, destruction and all of those things. So there's this notion that's there, but, it, but the details of that sort of thing and how exactly that works out is not really specific in, in the New Testament. If someone had time to read the Bible in one way, in one way only, what would you have them do? So example, a plan of reading it over a whole year, uh, just focusing on one or two particular books and reading them multiple times, having them read it straight through, New Testament first, Old Testament second, only a particular book. What, what uh, with that limit in place, what, and, and thinking this is somebody that's never read it before, what, what would you suggest that they that they do um i would i would stick to the narrative material first uh and read some of that uh so i would the, the place where people get bogged down is you get into you get you go genesis and genesis is kind of interesting and all of that and then you know the first parts of exodus are interesting and then you hit about exodus 30 32, 33, and then you get to, you know, the descriptions of the building of the tabernacle and you're getting to measurements and math. And then you get into the, into numbers and Leviticus, uh, or, uh, you get, no, sorry, Leviticus, then numbers, and then you get Deuteronomy and some of this stuff and you go, man, um, uh, all right, I guess I'm done. Um, so you want to avoid that as a first time reader. Uh, I would say start with Genesis for sure. Because uh, the the rest of the Bible depends on Genesis. I mean, all of it is is built on the notions that you see early on in the Torah. And I would read Genesis through about a about Exodus thirty four or thirty five, and then I would skip ahead to uh, to Deuteronomy and read through Deuteronomy. Uh, and you know it, where where it's not holding your attention too much, you know, especially in those middle chapters of Deuteronomy, I would read at least Deuteronomy one through six and then read, say Deuteronomy 28 through, uh, through the end and then work my way through the, the remainder. So presuming you're working with a traditional English Bible, which is on the, on the Christian old Testament, uh, orientation in terms of how the books are lined up. Then you read Joshua, judges, Ruth, first and second Samuel, first and second Kings, uh, first and second Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, you work all the way through all of those books and do it quickly. Read it like it's a novel. I mean, these are really interesting stories. They're, they're, you know, if you tried to do the book of judges on, on television, 
that would have to be one of those like pay-per-view or you know it would be it would be controversial and have to be yeah it'd have to be on hbo or something because it's you know it's you think uh uh game of thrones is is violent and and uh all sorts of you know nasty stuff in there read the book of judges so you know this stuff will keep you awake and keep you interested. So get through the narratives first. You got to make sure you have enough of the covenantal material in Deuteronomy in particular. And then from there, uh, start working through the, you know, you can read through either read through the rest of the, of the, of the Bible or the rest of the Hebrew Bible at that point in terms of prophets and all of that. That's probably what I would suggest. So from there you're reading, um, uh, and while I'm doing all that, by the way, I would be reading, I would read one proverb per day. Just read the one that's noted for that day. So if it's the first, read it, read Proverbs one, read Proverbs two on the second day and so on. Uh, so you do that along with your read, your regular read through, and then read a few Psalms a day and work your way through Psalms as you're reading the other stuff. Uh, and then once you get through Ezra, Nehemiah, you go to Esther, right? No problem. Job, also interesting. You read through uh, Ecclesiastes. By that point, you should be done with Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes has lots to say in, 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 uh, about what's going on in Proverbs. And you can start to work your way into that. And then from there, you work into the, into the prophets. And the best bet when you're reading the prophets is you need to have a Bible that has enough notes that gives you something to sort of latch on to, because each of these prophets is dealing with a specific context and if you don't know the context, if you're not going, oh, yeah, Isaiah is alive during the time of Hezekiah when this was happening and what I read in, you know, Second Kings. Well, if you don't have that, you're going to miss a lot. So uh, you want to have something that has enough to help you there. Uh, I would recommend for the Hebrew Bible uh, that people uh, get, uh, you know, use uh, Robert Alter's uh, recent translation with, with notes, which, uh, which is really terrific uh, and it's very readable. Um, but uh, work your way through there and then get to the New Testament and just fly through the New Testament in order. No problem. Uh, that's how I would do it. And I would try to do it as quickly as possible, reading it like a novel and work from work from there. And then once you're done with all of that, you can go back if you want to and, and plow through, you know, Leviticus and numbers, because, again, most people are going to have a little bit more trouble there. Yeah. So that would be how I would suggest it. Cool. Yeah, and that that's pretty much what I just did. I I I didn't skip around. I just went straight through. That's the first time I'd ever done it in my life and and yeah, things it gives yeah. you a whole different perspective when yep. you read it as a story. Yep. Um two more questions. One, you teach a lot of students. You see a lot of students coming in from different backgrounds, all sorts of stuff. Um what is what is one thing that just comes to mind immediately of what you wished your students understood or something that they get wrong most often uh, that you wish you could, could correct? Wow. There are a lot of those. Um, I would say probably specifically, obviously with, with, with the Bible. Yeah. Not not just, yeah. I would say probably this idea that you have a, in the, in the Old Testament, you have this notion of legalism where you're trying to earn God's favor through obedience. But then when you get to the New Testament, uh, God is a God of mercy and it really doesn't matter what you do. It's all about what you believe, you know, sort of cognitively. Uh, that, I think, is 
is the most common and most pernicious error or mistake that I get from, from students all the time. Uh, because when you, when you read the Hebrew Bible, what you don't see is this notion of legalism that you, that you get all the, all these, this image of God as this, uh, this sort of different deity. And you get this idea of God in the old Testament is, is, uh, is vengeful and wrathful. And in the new Testament, you have, you know, this kinder, gentler God, that, that division between the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament, which includes that legalism divide and you know, uh, law versus grace, all of these things, those dichotomies, which boil down to Old Testament, New Testament dichotomies, those are so thoroughly mistaken that it, it, I, I spend all semester when I'm teaching either Hebrew Bible or New Testament, spend all semester essentially undoing those, those notions. Uh, because... And when Jesus says, when Jesus is preaching the Sermon on the Mount, he intends that people actually do what he says. He doesn't think that it's impossible. He doesn't think that it's too difficult. He, there's no indication of that. And when, you know, when Paul says that people are going to be judged according to what they do, he's not, you know, crossing his fingers behind his back and being like, well, God's not really going to pay attention to what you do as long as you believe in Jesus. Uh, and, you know, you, you read Revelation or you read the first chapters of Acts and God is plenty uh, wrathful in the New Testament as well, as well as in the Hebrew Bible, where you read the Hebrew Bible enough and you find out that God is actually plenty merciful in the Hebrew Bible. So that that notion, that that divide between and, and it's a fundamentally it's a it's an anti-Jewish divide. It's people who have this image of Judaism that is incorrect. Uh, the New Testament is far more Jewish than people realize, and their image of what Judaism is and what uh, the Hebrew Bible is is also completely different from what they're what they're imagining. So that's the thing I'd, I'd probably correct the most is this this idea that the God of of the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament are different or characterized in different ways. That's not true. And specific, and then the idea that um, that that goes along with that that uh, it's all about what you do in the Old Testament. It's all about what you believe in the New Testament, and that's that's not true in either case. So. Uh, so yeah, that's that's what I would I would say is the biggest mistake. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. Uh, last question, and give you an easy one here. Um, version I, of the Bible I got has the word "holy" in front of it. Is the Bible holy? <laughs> well, holy holy just means uh, set apart or different. Uh, you know, it's it's uh, uh, not not common. It's not of uh, of common space. So for anyone who is Jewish or Christian, the Bible is absolutely clearly marked out as holy. It's something that, uh, that has a special status that is different from other books. Uh, so in that context, yeah. Now, if you're from a different tradition, then for you, the Bible actually, and this sounds, you know, overly relativistic, I'm sure to some people in the audience, but really that's what holy means. It means, it means different and distinct. Uh, so for those people, they, they, they don't have any way of treating the Bible as anything different from any other book, because for them, it's not, it's, it's just another book. Uh, so, you know, if we're talking ontologically, is it, you know, ontologically holy? Is it, you know, different in many respects from other books? Uh, you know, as, as a Christian myself, I'd say, yeah, we can, we, you know, we should probably view it that way, that it's got, uh, it's, it's a special, it's got special status as containing, uh, divine revelation, 
but you know, that's ultimately what that means. Okay. Well, good. Well, th- thank you, Jason. Any, anything, uh, anything else you'd like to add or, um, no, I, I don't know that I have much voice left to, uh, to add a whole lot. I mean, we've, uh, we've gone on plenty here. Uh, hopefully this was uh, interesting for folks. Uh, I will be, by the way, uh, later this summer, I'm going to be starting a, another podcast. So in addition to periodically coming on to this one, once I get my books out and have a little bit of breathing room to do that, uh, I'm also going to be starting another, bi- uh, another podcast actually called The Bible Pod where we're going to be going through, I will be going through all sorts of different things from the Bible, trying to explain them. Uh, the, the aim is to do uh, episodes around 15 to 30 minutes uh, on specific pieces of the Bible, and then periodically longer interviews with scholars uh, on important uh, aspects in important things in biblical scholarship. So I'm excited to launch that once I get the uh, books out and, uh, and get into the summer and have a chance to, uh, to plan out some episodes and, and work forward to, uh, to, to looking through which passages of the Bible are most commonly misinterpreted and how so, and, uh, you know, important themes in the Bible and so on. So that's a, that's a podcast I'm looking forward to doing, uh, to doing. And, uh, you know, if you're interested in that, sign up for the, for the, um, for the, uh, uh, newsletter on my site. Uh, I'll, I'll alert everybody when that's up. And uh, also, you know, I guess, Eric, you'll probably let people know as well uh, through the Books of Titans uh, site as well. So yeah, yeah, that's the only other thing. Well, good. And so yeah, it's jasonstaples.com. Uh, we will link to it in the in the show, no- show notes. That's going to do it for this episode. Thanks for listening. Uh, I'd love to hear from you if um, you have any questions uh, about this episode or, or anything stuck out to you. Um, uh, you can email me at eric at booksoftitans.com. That's Eric with a K. So E-R-I-K at booksoftitans.com. Remember to follow Books of Titans on Instagram or Twitter. It's just at Books of Titans. And the website is stock full of resources to help you find books and to create your own reading list. Uh, reminder that the uh, podcast will release every two weeks. Uh, this is a special episode, so this will be within the two weeks. Uh, but I'll be back next week, and I'm probably going to be covering the Sacred Romance, which is my hinge book and the hinge book is the book all of my other books in my library hinge upon so uh this one had a big impact on me in 1997 or 98 and uh it it led me on a journey to reading the classics and uh reading c.s lewis and all sorts of other people so uh that that will be a fun episode until then keep reading keep learning and keep listening i'm out